Do you think it's possible that some of the um, the discordances that they received were so were so bad because the cases that went for post mortem in the vector sector were more likely because the clinician was interested because it was a bit more presentation? Um, yeah. So they, uh, the main problem with that with the study was that there was there was no there was no selection done on the on the cases, and so. Um, but I think it, the interesting part is that it it, it made from the human aspect. They, they used to be not not anymore. There used to be that um, a higher percentage of people, even even when the diagnosis was fairly um, secure, would go for post mortem as part of a clinical audit. But um, I think what would be a really interesting thing would be to to do it in first opinion practice and say do um, and it's it's something that is possible, but. Um, the, the difficulty that that that's how we get in post mortems is that there tends to be a bit more of an emotional attachment to animals and, and the, the thought of them being cut up. But I think the um, yeah, I think it, with any study like that, it is going to be difficult to it, there are there are going to be selection biases that come in. But even so, I think I think it's quite interesting that the discordance is very similar. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for an uh, indeed uh, thoughtful uh, uh, look at the diagnosis. And I was wondering, um, as an epidemiologist, we, we are trying to think about what we call diagnostic models or prognostic models, where we take into account many different variables and say this is a particular probability of, of being this particular condition. Mm -hmm. um, is what you call an illness script basically a more or less qualitative prognostic or diagnostic model and, and could we kind of tease them out of these experts uh, heads? Yeah, the, the, when you sit experts down and ask them to, 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 to lay these things out they're, they're not always in log logical fashion but they, uh, in the human side they have, the illness scripts have been a, a theory for about 20-30 years and so they, when you sit an expert down you, you can get, you can tease out those those aspects um, but the the issue is with with developing your own illness scripts and so it's thought that that's a, a personal experience based thing so you you can look at somebody else's illness script but you can't tran you, it's thought that you can't transmit it from person to person no I, I understand that part but I would think if you look at the things that that the experts take into account a lot of these things are measurable variables I would think like the things you pointed out you can measure them more or less on each Patient. So you could make maybe quantitative prognostic yeah. models yeah. based on the uh, variables or information sources that the experts use. That that was my thinking. Yeah, it's it's possible, but the as I say, from the from the psychology perspective, you could do that as a as an external thing. But for an individual diagnostician, it may not be of use. That's the that's the issue with it. Couldn't you then just develop a computer program and just feed the information in and have the illness script in that and just replace us all with a computer? Yeah. Yeah, so they've, they've done it in humans. So um, there's, there's some, some quite neat studies looking at ECGs in humans and um, is a computer better at picking up ST elevation for myocardial infarction? Computers always outperform the humans. Yeah, I, I, if people want to play with it, they've been there for years. I think it was Doug Blood developed it, Consultant, mm. which is available at Cornell. And, yeah. of course, it, it, you know, it, 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 you know, it's an interesting thing to look at. What I was going to ask, uh, David, was has it changed how you approach your diagnosis? 
Uh, yes, it has actually. Yeah, and in I think what ways? Well, I think um, I think knowledge of, of your own thinking helps you um, recognise when you're when you're you. So, one of the problems and one of the good things to experience is pattern recognition, and so it can. I think when you you become better at spotting the inconsistencies. So, as, as you move from novice into expert or to more experienced, then novices tend to try and explain away the inconsistencies rather than incorporating incorporating it into into the and changing their ideas. And so that's the, that's where the premature closure comes from is that they explain them away. And so, I think it's it's tempting, and certainly as a as a practitioner, it's it's. <laughs> It's difficult to go back on your diagnosis sometimes, but I think it's. Um, I think once you recognise why you're doing it, I think it becomes easier. Right. Can I just ask? Well, I want to ask two two things or make yep. a statement. I guess so. So I think it's not sacrosanct to say that problem-based learning isn't a particularly valuable way of doing things because I, I think this is the whole point. What we're really interested in developing is a logical approach that recognises the potential for inconsistencies and emphasises that as being the concern yeah. um, against whatever sort of level of illness script you want to have and however you embellish them with experience. I do think it's important, just there's a confounding factor in here, which is when we talk about experts or when, sorry, when the literature is reported as experts, it sometimes slips into not experienced pr practitioners but specialists. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. and that brings with it a, a really serious and important confounding factor. If you just look at... It's a little project we think we'll be doing soon. But if you look at um, specialist cases, the types of cases, in humans at least, 80 to 90% of the cases that are seen by specialist dermatologists are explained by 10 to 12 diagnoses. Mm, yeah, and yeah. similarly for cardiologists in the vicinity of 9 or 10 mm -hmm. diagnoses. So their illness scripts, if you like, for specialists mm. are much, much narrower yeah. Can, can afford to be more well-defined and perhaps, therefore, any inconsistencies amplified more mm. more significantly than somebody who's in general practice like yourself. Yeah. I, I, that's, not, that's not disagreeing no, with anything you're yeah. saying, but it is a potential confounding factor we need to be very careful about. Yeah, and it's actually interesting when you take specialists out of their area of expertise... And you put them in a, a it's different not area. It's frightening. And they they perform, they perform worse than novices yeah. in terms of things. So, um, <laughs> and the, the 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 other point is that we don't know whether people have to go through the problem based learning stage in order to get to that. And that, there's there's debates about whether whether you should or you, or you can use a combination. But I don't think we know the answer really. I think I think the point is we have we have analytical and non-analytical reasoning or pattern recognition yeah, and logical yeah. approach, whatever you want, and people need to recognise that those two modalities are available depending on the context you find yourself yeah. in, the, the consistency. Yeah. Kristen. Thanks, David. Good talk and really interesting concepts and things to think about. But doesn't an expert see work through loads of problems to develop the script? Isn't that how they get there? I understand that as a novice, you might not have mm. the background information to do that, but... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think we don't know is the, is the answer, whether, whether you have to go through that stage of backward reasoning, so hypothetical deductive, and, and then whether that becomes a part of your experience, this knowledge network that, we, that you have um, in the background or not, or whether you can just jump straight from novice to expert just by illness scripts, but 
But haven't they, haven't they developed the script by facing lots of problems? So and, just by seeing cases. Yeah, um, which are so problem-based problem learning, problems, right? But then in terms of the, the interesting thing about experts is, that, is, the, is the subconscious part of, of things, that they can dismiss large swathes of data um, very easily. Now, whether problem-based learning can lead you to that point I don't know. There's there's a lot of literature on it in the human side and um, certainly in psychology as well. But people are split. There's no there's, there's no sort of overarching theory. So some people think yes, you have to go through the problem based thing because otherwise, how do you get the background knowledge? But other people say that you you just have to get your real, somehow create your illness scripts, but you don't necessarily have to go through that That's that that drowning in in differentials. So, but could you just spring forth as an expert without possibly. having had that clinical experience and seeing lots of yeah, cases? Possibly, if we you could, if, if we change the undergraduate curriculum, maybe. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. Um, one of the things that I uh, thought was very interesting in Daniel Kahneman's book was that in the S one uh, way of thinking, we completely ignore base rates. Mm which may be okay for experts. They, they see a lot of oddballs and, and the base rate is of much less importance. But for people in practice, the base rate is the key one that drives the quality of diagnosis. Mm. So it may well be that the last thing we want is having practitioners emulate experts yeah. and actually stay away completely from S1 and only focus on S2 ways mm. of thinking. The, the problem is there's two ways of thinking is that people try and avoid it as much as possible. Because it's, it's 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 difficult and it's exhausting, and people are easily distracted by it, um, distracted from using it. The 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 possible answer to that is is that um, as as in the human side of thing, then people should you know in the future may become experts in general practice, which would um, which would mean that they they have a wide range of experience, but not the specialism in terms of a particular area because. As we've seen, if you if you remove experts from their comfort zone, they perform very poorly in terms of diagnosis. David, can you hear me? Um, thank you so much for reviewing this because I actually touched on this in my talk. Um, I do think that there is a terminology thing that we need to be very, very aware of. Um, in the literature that David cites, expert means experience. Um, so typically it's novice um, interns or residents compared to a nephrologist or a novice GP compared to an experienced GP. Um, so this, I think when we say expert, uh, I'm feeling that many in the room are, are thinking specialist. Um, and that's not the context of this literature, because you can have quite new specialists who haven't had enough experience to develop all the scripts and schemas that a very experienced GP induces. And so I think it's very, we need to be clear what we mean by expert in this literature, because it means experience. Yeah. It doesn't mean specialism. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, diagnosis is obviously important in getting stats for uh, David and his work, but also in the starting point for treatment, whatever. But the two levels of diagnosis, dis definitive, which is saying it's disease X without question, and discriminatory, where it could be X, Y, or Z, but that's as far as we're going to go for practical reasons, cost, and the treatment between for the three is the same. Mm -hmm. How do we handle that? Because clearly, discriminatory diagnosis at a practical level in practice is potentially important, or is important, and how we then handle those cases and be able to do um, studies comparing different approaches for that discriminatory diagnosis. Mm. Yeah, um, 
I think in terms of, you know, diagnosis should never be considered in isolation. I mean, obviously I did do this talk, but it's always part of the, the clinical encounter whereby treatment options are, are considered against what the possible diagnoses might be. And so I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it's up to the clinician to know when, when you've gone far enough down the diagnostic pathway. So I think the problem is with novices is that there's a, a, a real focus on definitive diagnosis, which in clinical practice is not required. And so um, that's something that, you know, is part of the, is a, is a product, I think, of, of problem-based learning to an extent. Can I, can I just also comment? I mean, in, in terms of, as, as David says, really, diagnosis is a word that has different levels of, or has stratification, as you've said, John. In terms of what we're doing, for instance, at Vet Compass, we take great pains to, to talk to people and try and encourage them to recognise what we're talking about as a level of understanding for that episode of care. And that's a, that's a lot of words, but and in fact, I think it is a more accurate reflection of what we're talking about. The episode of care ends for some reason, and we have a level of understanding which may or may not give us a degree of confidence about how we're going to act from then on. And, I mean, it's, it's self-evident when you actually define it out, but it mm. is it is early on um, surprising how people are, are so convinced that this has to be definitive. Mm. And I absolutely take the point about the specialist versus the, the experienced general practitioners. One of the questions that you, you may well be able to help us with, though, is, is how much more of the medical care in America particular, particularly is done by specialists than it's done by generalists in, in, for instance, the UK, Australasia, where most people have a GP, whereas I understand it from many people talking is that's you, you very quickly get to a specialist in terms of your medical care in the United States. So although it is experience, there's a fairly heavy bias for specialists being involved in the experience group. No? loud enough. Um, so I was trying to just be clear about when David um, spoke about what expert meant in this literature, it really just means experience. It doesn't mean specialty. Um, I do think as a point of fact that I think I do have a chip on my f- shoulder because I am a GP and I'm an extremely experienced GP with a broad background and many times my expertise is greater than my specialist colleague, um, particularly for internal medicine. In the U.S., um, specialty care delivered to animals is probably about the same as here, um, and problem-based care in the general practice is about the same. We looked at our practice versus what Dr. Robinson um, saw in the center, and it's about two-thirds problem-based care. I do like the fact you guys call us first opinion vets because um, they don't get to the specialists without seeing me first, and I only refer probably 5 to 10% of that problem to the specialist, and I have to deal with the rest of it myself. Uh, specialists only get the difficult-to-regulate diabetic cat, shall we say. Um, so in terms of our veterinary system, it's probably quite similar. In terms of our human health care system, you are absolutely correct. We have fragmented, very specialized care. Dr. Schultz. Yes, I liked it very much, your talk about uh, diagnosis, but I would see you again when you talk about prognosis. You know, I'm very interested in uh, uh, oncology, and uh, I think this is very important here 
to, to talk about uh, the precise uh, prognosis or uh, depending on the diagnosis. So it's a very interesting field and I liked it very much to hear it from you. But in Germany, I knew in human medicine, you know, more and more people try to find, uh, think that the second opinion, you know, the second opinion from specialists, mm. even if there's a concurrence of, you know, the this uh, maybe specialist, you know, but maybe to have a second opinion, you know, to have a better, maybe to improve the pr uh, diagnosis and the following prognosis eventually in human medicine. So it's really worth to have a second opinion. Yeah. Yep. I just want to throw a slight spar in the works and say, how much can we actually rely on our confirmed diagnosis? Um, I'm an oncologist, and about three years ago now, I had a case referred with an absolute categorical diagnosis of mesenteric lymphoma in the lymph nodes. We got it IHC'd, we got it double-checked. That dog's had no treatment, and it's still totally 100% fine. And so it made me question, we look, and we, we focus very much on pathological diagnosis as being kind of the gold standard. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe we have a fundamental flaw in that we don't actually know very much at all. Yeah, I think... Um... I've not read the literature, but I think it's, it's particularly pertinent for cats with um, either lymphocytic plasmacytic enteritis or lymphoma. And I think the, there was a study done on it, and the, the, the concordance between pathologists was, I don't know, I think, I think it was about 30%, which is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's quite scary, but then, I don't know, what else are you going to do? <laughs> you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, I suppose. Okay, I think we've, we've grilled David more than enough. Uh, he finished early, but that just gave us a chance for many more questions, which I think have been uh, interesting. So it remains for me to ask you to uh, thank him for a stimulating and thought-provoking talk. Um, thanks very much, David.